pray and we'll pick up where we left off last time. Was it what? Uh, yes and no. Uh, I haven't printed anything out yet, and part of the reason is because when I'm doing this week after week, I'm adding two, and, and so huh, you'll get them when we're done, the fullness of it, <laughs> instead of me printing out something that's incomplete each week. Does that make sense? Okay, all right. Uh, let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we ask that uh, your blessing uh, of wisdom and knowledge and understanding would be upon us this morning. We ask that your spirit would enlighten us to your truth. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for your son, Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Okay, so we picked, we're going to pick, off, uh, pick up where we left off last time, uh, and that is the Passover. Uh, if you remember, let's uh, just look at the outline here real quick, kind of what I'm following. This is all about justification, Okay. So justification, kind of the big topics of justification. Uh, we can't just throw out the word justification and assume, oh, wow, justification, God's declared me to be righteous. That is a fact. That is what Scripture teaches, but what does that really mean? And how does it apply to the Old Testament? And how does it apply to my future? And what are the definitions that come with that? And how does this look in a social justice kind of environment? There's so much to this. So we talked about the definitions. We talked about what justifi justification requires, uh, the highlights of justification in redemptive history. That's where we are right now. So we're picking up with the Passover, the highlights of justification in redemptive history in the Old Testament, okay, uh, in redemptive history. So we're going to Old and New Testaments. Uh, and then we'll get to the essential terms related to salvation, which will basically be a recap of the order salutis, the order of salvation. Uh, and then we'll talk about false ideas about justification, what Paul had to face, what he was looking at in the Greek and Roman uh, social system, the religious system, the economic system, the political power. What did that look like to the people that he was preaching to? And then social justice and politics and the law and, and, and how we look at today justification, what that means. You're not just justified so that you can have some kind of piece of paper that claims it's a get-out-of-jail-free card for a monopoly. It's not that. It's not just a card. It, it, there's things we're supposed to be doing in light of that. It's a reflection of that. And then uh, difficulties. There are difficulties. Qu people uh, have questions about, well, what does justification mean? What is it, you know, how this, why that? Uh, we'll look at some of those. And miscellaneous Bible verses and so forth. And then I'm going to give you guys a quiz at the end. So... Oh, okay. All right. I'm feeling a whole lot better now. Okay. So we're going, we, we talked about for the highlights of redemptive history, we, remember we talked about uh, the names of Noah. That was a very exciting thing to look at, uh, the gospel there in Genesis. Uh, and then we talked about the covering with the fig leaves and the animal skins that God covered them with, the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, if you remember uh, how Abraham was told to cut up the pieces of meat, but it was only, uh, it was only uh, God that went through the pieces of meat, and he went through it twice to represent both his end of the, gar uh, of the bargain, of the covenant, God's end, and man's end, right? And now we're looking at the Passover. 
And we're looking at these things because these are all the foundations of justification. These aren't necessarily the declaration itself. This isn't the declaration of justification itself, but it is the basis upon which justification is founded. Okay? So when we talk about the, the plagues on Egypt and then, then the Passover, this event, this sequence of event, of events, the ten plagues, the people in Egypt in Exodus chapters 1 through uh, basically 11 before they leave Egypt and they go into the wilderness in chapter 12 and so forth right with the Passover. That whole sequence leading up to the, the giving of the law in Exodus 20, that whole event is the Old Testament equivalent to the coming of Jesus Christ, to his life, his work, his death, and his resurrection. Okay, there is a very close parallel there. So we can talk about that another time, but let's look at the plagues on Egypt, God's judgment on Egypt through the plagues and the freeing of Israel from slavery out of bondage in the Old Testament was equivalent, uh, was equivalent to, and I didn't even finish that sentence, so I'll go say that's another reason. I'll go back and finish that sentence, and then you'll have it. So. Okay, Exodus 12, 12. Uh, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. All the plagues were a judgment on Egypt. The first three were on Israel as well. If you go back and read, uh, they suffered the first three as well. Um, uh, the last plague, death, however, was a judgment for the unbeliever. But through faith, the believer was exempt. It was passed over. Okay. So again, what is the ground? What do we have in this judgment, this last plague? We have death. We have blood that's put on the doorposts. We have uh, uh, grace and mercy by God. We have faith, believing that if you do what he says, he will not bring judgment. You have judgment, right, with death. You have all of these things that are involved in what justification is to start with, okay? And here we are in the Old Testament. So it's, it's no different. This is the foundation, again, of what we read and continue on into the New Testament. And then you have the meal and the blood and the doorposts, faith, obedience, death, all of these things that I just mentioned. Uh, the meal, uh, this was life through death. I mean, and when we eat, if you think about it, if you eat meat, and if you don't, if you're a vegetarian, you need to read Romans 14. He says, it's the weak person who eats just vegetables. I didn't say that. God did. But... So, anyway, um, when we eat meat, right, there is this life that we receive through the death that, that we have experienced through this animal or whatever it is, right? Hope it's just an animal. Uh, in Middle Eastern culture, though, uh, the meal represented fellowship and peace. Now, remember this. Think about this. The, the meal represents peace when we have communion. When we have the Lord's Supper, this is more than just. It is a remembrance. This do in remembrance of me, Jesus said. But it's much more than that as well. You're coming to the table with the assumption that based on your justification, you are at peace with God. And this is why Paul says, examine yourselves. You need to make sure you are right with God. You cannot come to the table pretending that you're going on with these sins and doing all these things and you have problems with your brother and you're going to have a meal with me? No. And you remember Judas dips his hand in with Christ at the same time. And then Jesus says, Judas, whatever you have to do, go and do quickly. 
Judas left. And it was the other 11 that stayed there with the meal. So, so we have to make sure that when we have communion, we do these things, we are actually, am I okay with my brother? Is there anybody who has a trespass against me? Uh, is there anybody that I have a problem with that I need to go to and settle, settle these things? So this meal in the Old Testament, this Passover, was uh, representative of that. Uh, the immediate effect of justification is reconciliation. It is being at peace. Uh, the one, uh, and one of the greatest evidences of this is communion that we just talked about. Okay, God invites his people to the table of peace and reconciliation in Christ. And Judas left the meal. We talked about that blood. All right? The blood. Scripture says that the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes an atonement for the soul. So redemption, the debt we owe and is paid in full, uh, the debt that we owe and that has been paid in full is the monetary means of justification. There's actually a true payment that is made. That payment is the blood of Christ. Okay, we're told that in the New Testament over and again, right? The church has been purchased by the blood of Christ. So there is a purchase that happens. It occurs. Uh, some cults and heretics will say that that purchase uh, is, it was made to Satan. That, that, that Christ's offering and his death was made to Satan so that Satan would now uh, leave us alone. He's been paid. Go away. It's hush money. You know, no. No, the blood of Christ was paid to himself, to God the Father, who, under whom we are uh, his wrath, under whose wrath we're under, right? So it's very important to understand that, that the only thing that's going to assuage God's wrath to turn it away is that propitiatory sacrifice. And you remember what the other word was there? Propitiation and expiation, right? Expiation cleanses us, makes us, uh, removes the guilt. Propitiation turns God's wrath away. You have to have both, okay? Uh, and then the doorpost. The doorpost, we seem like, it, you know, we might think that what an what a insignificant thing the doorposts are, but the doorposts were representative throughout Scripture. Christ says, I am the door, right? There, there's more to the doorpost than just, uh, than just it being a couple pieces of wood that you go in and out of. It does represent that. But the doorposts was the entry into safety. It was within the walls of the home through the doorposts. So when the death angel was coming... It sees the blood, and you're protected inside. And that, that, that occurred by faith, right? By faith, they were applying this blood and so forth. Um, and later on, we see that the doorposts represented as well a picture of uh, where a servant or a slave would have their ear pierced. The, the owner, the master, would take the slave over to the doorpost, put his ear up against the doorpost, and take the hammer or the nail or whatever it was and, and pierce his ear and then give him an earring and he was now an indentured servant to his master, okay? So a beautiful picture of what the doorposts represent beyond just uh, the Passover. And then we have faith. Faith is always going to be an element. And some of these elements we're going to come back and hit as we go through this, but just kind of a sweeping overview. Abraham's faith was accounted to him as righteousness. In other words, faith was given to Abraham by God, okay? We have to understand 
if Abraham, Abraham's faith equals, if it's a mathematical formula, Abraham's faith was accounted to him as righteousness. It equaled righteousness. Well, wait a second. Let me let's talk about this for, for a second. Can you see me? All the notes are on the back. So Abraham's faith was. Was is an equivalent word in English, right? Whenever you see the word is or was or has been or whatever, those linking verbs are equivalent statements. Was counted to him as righteousness. Well, here's the issue when we talk about, uh, when we talk about man and his ability to, to choose God and so forth. If his faith is counted to him as righteousness, where did the righteousness come from? You see, what you do on one side of the equal sign, you have to do on the other side to make it equal. Otherwise, it's not equal. And if God is the one who gives righteousness, then it has to be God being the one who gives your faith. You see, you see the point? Otherwise, if it's all Abraham saying, well, I believe it was all me, I did it, God offered it, but I, then it's lopsided in the favor of man. <laughs> and that can't be. That cannot be, okay? So both of these are from God, by God, to God, for his glory, for our good, and so forth, okay? Uh, man's efforts can never equal, any, uh, equal to anything except death. Uh, the best that I can create, that I can contribute is my work, my righteousness. And Isaiah tells us, for all of my righteousness are filthy rags, right? And certainly not trying to be crude, but those righteousness, that, that, those works that I do that are called righteousness are in Hebrew minstrel rags. That's what my righteousness is, something to be discarded and thrown away. So it, it's it's very clear from Scripture, there are multiple other places as we go through this, that, that my righteousness cannot be righteous in and of itself. It has to be, something has to be done to it. I have to be given righteousness in order for it to be truly accepted by God. And by the way, God's not going to accept anything you have to give. He's going to only accept what He Himself has made holy. If He's holy, and think about it, if He's holy, He's only going to accept what is holy? So anything that you pray, Spurgeon said this, and I love this. Spurgeon said, when you get on your knees and pray, as a believer, of course, it's the Holy Spirit that squeezes the words out of your heart. And, and what is God going to listen to? Is he going to listen to anything you have to say, or is he going to listen to his word? He is a composer. And he wants to hear his music. Okay? He doesn't want to hear your music. He wants to hear his music. And so when we pray, it's his words coming back to him. So when you confess, it's, it's, God, it's the Spirit convicting you of guilt. Right? When you praise him, it is based upon what we read in Scripture that he deserves as praise. The creator, the God who is redeemer, the shepherd. His love and his care and even his wrath, all right? That's part of who he is. So uh, there's, we can read through this, but I don't want to just sit here and read this. Uh, I want to get to the topics and then discuss them. So obedience, okay? Nobody's going to deny that obedience is not a part. 
of justification. But what does Ephesians 2.10 say? For we are created in Christ Jesus unto good works. And what are those good works? When were those good works determined? What Prepared beforehand for you to do. Right? So we have what Scripture tells us we should be doing. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbors, yourself. These sum up the, the, the Ten Commandments. And, of course, the Ten Commandments flush those out. Somebody once said, I think it was Francis Schaeffer, who said, um, God has given us the Ten Commandments, and the rest of Scripture uh, basically exposits that. You know, when you are saved from the law, and what we mean by that is the curse of the law, you are actually saved to love the law. Psalm 119, right? David, I mean, he wrote a whole acrostic. He takes the Hebrew alphabet in Psalm 119, and for each letter, Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, Eva, for each one of those letters, he goes through and he writes five, six, seven, eight verses extolling the law, praising God for the law that he's given. Your law is perfect. It's sweeter than honey in the honeycomb. It's, it, it converts the soul. It convicts of sin. It does all these wonderful things. I love your law. Your law is a, a light unto my path, right? So, so when God saves us, the law does convict us. It shows us that we can't save ourselves and that obedience to the law can't save us. But then God does this incredible switch, and he makes us love the law because we now have someone who has kept the law, right? And our, if our hope is in him, God doesn't look to us for the keeping of that. God looks to Christ. And if we're pleading his blood, just like the Passover, the death angel passes. So it's a beautiful thing. All of this, I hope you're seeing more about justification than just justification, just the term and the legal declaration of freedom. Okay, it's much more than that. Uh, and then we have death, of course. We talked about that with the death angel. We have Cain. Uh, uh, wages of sin is death. Uh, as with Cain, God rejects every offering made to him. This is important, okay? This is important. When you have Cain and Abel, and God had cursed the ground, and you have Abel, who was a shepherd, and what had God done with Adam and Eve? And Adam and Eve, by the way, remember, they took plants. They took something from the ground to try to cover themselves with their works, it didn't work. God kills an animal, takes the skin. There's blood, death, substitution, sacrifice. Okay? He does that. Adam and Eve then tell their children, this is what happened. We sinned. God covered us. And so they had an idea. I'm thoroughly convinced of it. They had an idea of what justification was, what atonement was, what sacrifice was. And Cain didn't like that. I don't know what his reasoning was for it, but he preferred to farm. He preferred to go to the curse and to, by his work give something to God. And people are going to look at that and say, well, his intentions were, were good. But were they? If you're ignoring the gospel, how good can intentions be? Right? So he offered something from the curse the works of his hands, and it, it can't do. It has to be 
through the blood, through sacrifice, through substitution, through death. Okay? All right, Moses in the law, and this is a beautiful thing. Oh, yeah. Last week we looked at the five solas, right? Christ alone, Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, to the glory of God alone. Yeah, absolutely, Andy, great point. So he, here's this thing about Moses and the law. Uh, now, the Hebrew people, traditionally, right, historically, are a very visualistic people. They're a very grounded people. If they talk about something, so for example, uh, if you were more in line with the Greek New Testament writing and thinking, ways of thinking, you would talk about something ethereal, some idea, some, some you know, nebulous idea out there, some abstract. The, the Hebrews were more concrete. The Greeks might say something like this. God is ubiquitous and everywhere, and he's, you know, he's... But the Hebrews, or God owns everything, the Hebrews would say, well, they would look at a hill, and they, they would see the cattle on it, and they would say, well, God is the owner of a cattle on a thousand hills. You, do you see how earthy that is, how down to, down to earth that is, how simplistic and, okay. So to them, it doesn't matter how many hills you have or how many cattle you have, God owns everything is the point. Right, so when we say God owns everything, that's more of a kind of a New Testament Greek way of thinking. God owns everything. It's true. The Hebrews are going to think more in picture terms. Right? He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. So when we come to Moses and the law, they are visualistic. You have Moses, and that's a river. Okay, this is the River Jordan. River Jordan, Moses dies. The people were, be, were supposed to be going into the promised land, okay? Moses receives the law, and this is a different mountain, but he receives the law on the mountain, right? Written by the hand of God. He destroys it, and then, he, then God makes him re-etch it, <laughs> all right? So Moses, before he dies, dies on top of a mountain, overlooking the promised land. God did not let him go into the promised land. Okay? What did Moses represent? If you're a Hebrew, 
What's the first thing you're thinking about? When you think of Moses, Moses, the law. He went up 40 days he was gone. God gave him the You're thinking the law. We think of the law when we think of Moses, right? And then here, who was Moses' protege? Who? Joshua. Moses, who leads the people into the promised land? Joshua. Okay. So the law cannot save. Yeshua saves. Joshua saves. The Lord saves. He takes us into the land. And so looking at the Old Testament in terms of its salvation, redemptive history, and justification, this was a clear indication to the, to the Hebrew people, visually. The law's not, to, Moses doesn't get to go into the land. The law can't take us to the promised land. It's not about the law. It's about Joshua, Yeshua, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. That's who saves us. And so we have all of these allusions in the Old Testament, all of these pictures and types and all these foreshadows and all of these things that point to the coming and the death, work, life, resurrection of Christ. It's a wonderful thing. Okay? And then we have the burial of Moses' body and the resurrection. I am going to read this. This is interesting. This is 12 verses. I'm not trying to just burn time here, but this is, to me, very interesting here. Okay? Uh, 5 through 12. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died in the land of Moab, according to the Lord's word. God, he buried him in the valley of the land of Moab, facing Beth Peor. And no one to this day knows where his grave is. The Israelites wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses came to an end. Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. So the Israelites obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. No prophet had arisen, has arisen again in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. But there is another prophet who will know God face to face. Right? But no, at this time, no, no prophet since then. Um, he was unparalleled for all the signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do against the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, to all his officials, and to all his land, for all the mighty acts of power and terrifying deeds that Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. And then we get to Jude, one chapter. So that's why it's one through nine. It's not chapters one through nine. It's just verses one through nine. When Michael, the archangel, was disputing with the devil in an argument about Moses' body, we were just told he was buried. Nobody knows where he was buried. So why would the devil want Moses' body? This is, you'll find multiple commentaries and, uh, with different opinions, and that's fine. This is my take on it. If the devil could get Moses' body, however minimal in the devil's mind it would be, however insignificant it would be, it would still be a small victory in his mind because he would have a body. And so resurrection would not be in the power of God. I have the body. You can't have the body. I think it's about resurrection. 
And if you look at Romans 8, 28, 29, right, for those whom he called, he also did, did uh, justify, and whom he justified, he also glorified, right? Ultimately, we're going to be glorified. Glorified is what? A resurrected body. So my uh, take on that is that it's about resurrection. It's about trying to stop the resurrection, okay? Uh, and then verse Corinthians 15, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. If you, don't, if you believe in there's, that there's a God, but you don't believe in the resurrection, it's pointless. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we've testified wrongly about God that He raised up Christ, whom He did not raise up, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you're still in your sins. Okay? And then we get to the tabernacle. Uh, I'm going to come back to the tabernacle because there's more here than what I had time to put in. We just, I just recently did a, a walk through a study of the tabernacle and the furniture with a, a different group, but it, it is a fantastic study. And all of the pieces of the furniture and how they point to Christ, right, with the laver and the incense and the, I mean, all of it, the whole work. Uh, uh, you know, details of, of the, the tabernacle that you just don't quite... The silver plates, the silver foundation plates that held the post up, weighed, made of pure silver, weighed about 90 pounds. <laughs> you start getting into those kinds of details, and it's like, wow, God, God really was concerned about purity, and he didn't hold back any expense for these things. Oh, yeah. Well, and Andy, I want to I add on to that with this. When Moses goes up to get the Ten Commandments, and they're left to themselves under the direction and responsibility of Aaron. Aaron should have known better. They get worried that, that is Moses coming back? He's probably died we need to worship. And the only thing they needed to worship was what they'd experienced in Egypt. So they get all of the jewelry together, melt it down under Aaron's direction, and they create the golden calf. And guess what they called the golden calf? Yahweh. Hey, I'm not trying to be Joe Biden here. Sorry. I shouldn't have whispered that. Oh, boy. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's, and so you end up, MacArthur has a great, great commentary on this, this section, but you, basically you have this golden calf who they're calling Yahweh as if it's the true God. It's the right name, wrong thing, right? And how often do we put the right name to the wrong thing? And that's our false worship. That's just, you know, Calvin said that our, our, our hearts are idol factories. We just churn out idol after idol after idol. 
So we have to be on guard for those kinds of things. We have to understand who the true God of Israel was. He's not a golden calf. Right? And then we have the New Testament. And again, we will come back to the, the Old Testament uh, furniture and, and, and so forth, but it was way, way over um, uh, too much material. New Testament. We get into that. Now, now we have the prophecy of Christ. Prophecy of Christ's coming. Prophecy of His birth. How is this... What does this have to do with justification? He is the very ground upon which our justification stands. Our justification is built upon His existence. He has to intervene. He has to, uh, you know intrude, invade human creation. He has to come for the other things to happen. Okay, he fulfilled the prophecies. God's Word is true. And then the purpose of Christ's works. Christ fulfilled all the requirements of the law. You have His passive obedience and His active obedience. Actively, what did He do? He kept the law. Passively, what did He do? He gave his life up. He yielded his life. So he was, he was a, the complete fulfillment of all that the law required in every regard. And then you had the payment of Christ's death. Well, is that not the reflection of what we just have been talking about with the Passover and Adam and Eve and all the sacrificial systems and his, his death, his his blood is justification. That is what justification is founded on. And just like in the Old Testament, you have, you have this element, the Passover, right? They were brought at, out of Egypt. Mitzrayim. They were brought out of Egypt, the Passover, and then they received the law. And what do you have as an equivalent in the New Testament? You have Jesus who goes into the wilderness for 40 days, right? Wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. He goes into the wilderness for 40 days. He's tempted by Satan, right? He comes, he comes, and the first thing in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, you have the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount in which he basically exposits the Ten Commandments. Right? I mean, the parallel, and you can keep going. The parallels are just incredible with these kinds of things. So we have to go back and understand the Old Testament history and relevance here. And then the promise of Christ's resurrection. Again, resurrection we talked about with Moses' body, but this is a significant thing. If there is no resurrection, there is no hope. If there is no hope, there, your faith is worthless and you die in your sins. And listen, this is the evangelistic one of the evangelistic tools that we use with the unbeliever. What do you, how do you atone for your sin? You ask the Jew, how do you atone for your sins? How, historically, how have your people atoned for their sins? Well, through sacrifices. Okay, well, what do you do today for your, your guilt and your sin? Do you still practice sacrifices? Oh, no, no, no. So how do you atone for your sins? They can't. No one else does. No other religion does, except through works, some way. 
Right. Yeah. That, their, their hope is, is they're just nomads spiritually. They're wandering. They're still wandering uh, in a real sense. And then the presence of Christ's kingdom. And this is, a, this is a wonderful thing. I mean, Christ's kingdom is here. When Christ the king came, he wasn't just king for a little while. He came to establish his kingdom. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. Okay, in other words, it's not this type of kingdom. I have a kingdom because I am the king. And to the point to where what was placed over his head when he was crucified? Jesus, king of the Jews, they did it to mock him. They didn't realize they were preaching truth. Right? Jesus, king of the Jews. In three languages, nonetheless. So Christ spoke of his kingdom already here. Uh, some have proposed the now and not yet, which is, I, I think there's some good truth to that aspect of his kingdom. Whatever the case, he's sitting and ruling in heaven. He controls all things, upholds all things by the word of his power. Therefore, forgiveness is forever. Ecclesiastes says what God does, he does forever. And we talked about this last time or a, week, a couple weeks ago, that if God loved you, loves you, he's always loved you, right? So what he does, he does forever. Heaven, uh, therefore, his once-for-all sacrifice on our behalf is perpetual. And this is what makes Catholicism such an offense to God. They have what's called the crucifix, right? And on the crucifix, not the cross, it's the crucifix, a different thing. The crucifix has the image of Christ in the midst of his suffering on the cross. So where is Christ? He's on the cross. He's still making that sacrifice. Uh, no, he made it once for all. One time. He ain't on the cross. He sits at the right hand of God the Father. He reigns supreme over his kingdom. Okay? Uh, our justification and every other aspect of salvation is safe, secure, and sure through his, through his resurrection, okay, through his kingdom. And then you have the three offices of Christ, prophet, priest, and king. Uh, didn't write these out, but it's very, very clear. Uh, Hebrews 1, let's go there because Hebrews is, is a place where you'll find that. Hebrews 1, 1. How is... And then can somebody turn to Deuteronomy 18.15? We'll start. Get you guys doing exercises while we do this. Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. Who's got it? Anybody? Yeah, go ahead. Out loud. And then verse 2. What? Yes. Okay. He spoke in times past through the prophets. That's how God has determined to communicate with his people, through the prophets. But in these last days, 
He's spoken to us through his son. Who is the prophet? He ends the need for prophets. If you have today somebody who's running around telling you, I'm an apostle, I'm a prophet, uh, kick them in the pants as hard as you can and run fast. Because those people are, are a nuisance and they are heretics. They need the gospel. They are by no means uh, authoritative in what they say. All right? So it's, it's a serious issue. Christ is the last prophet. Deuteronomy 18.15. Somebody. Oh, okay. So who's God going to raise up? Right when Moses died, they were thinking, oh, this is it. Of course, God sends the prophets later on, right? Ezekiel, Daniel, Isaiah, and the others. But who's God going to raise up? Who is that talking about? That's talking about Christ. Right? There's going to be a prophet. So we have Old Testament, New Testament about the office of Christ as prophet. Well, what about priest? And these are, these are not exhaustive. These are just representative verses. There are, there are many, many more. Uh, what about priest? And by the way, the role of a prophet. What, what was the role of a prophet? Had, he had two functions. A prophet had two functions. Right? For, fourth tell. And what? Yes, to tell forth and to foretell, which is future, right? So preach the gospel, give the truth, and predict the future. And we see Christ do both, right? He corrects the Pharisees. He corrects the culture. He brings them back to the true meaning of the law, the gospel. And then he starts predicting the future, right? Nobody can do that but a true prophet, and that was the mindset of the Jews because they were saying, you know what? This man is pretending to be a prophet. He's pretending to be the prophet, and he's prophesying all these things. And that was wrapped up into all of their thinking about him claiming to be God, and he should be killed because he's doing things that only God can do. Okay? Priest. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Somebody. Listen, if that's not exciting, I, I don't know why you're still sitting here. Y'all be going telling somebody that right now, right? That is exciting news, that we have a great high priest. And what was the priest's function? The prophet was sent from God to us. What does the priest do? Represents us to God, right? And Jesus does both. We, have, we get a twofer. We get... We get one person, and by the way, you could not be mixed offices in the Old Testament. You remember Saul got in trouble for taking the role of the priest, uh, of the prophet, uh, Samuel. He got in trouble for doing that. So these offices can't be mixed. They can't be commingled. And yet, what does Jesus do? He assumes all three, prophet, priest, and king. He is our great high priest. And if you can't see the relevance to justification, that we have a legal declaration, that we are declared not to be innocent, but what? Not guilty. Big difference. 
None of us are innocent. But if you're a believer, you're not guilty. That means you can walk out of the courtroom free and still have committed the sins you did and not suffer the penalty for it. And, and, and that is what justification is, and that is why our great high priest ends all of the sacrifices. The Jews don't practice that today, and they don't know why. And, and it's just to see the ripple effect of the death of Christ, that it, that it even ended sacrifices for the Jews who don't believe in him. <laughs> you know, just amazing. And then 1 John 2, 1, I'm kind of selectively picking some here. 1 John 2, 1. Let me, and while you're doing that, let me get a couple of uh, these other verses here for King. Uh, Revelation 17, 14, somebody look that one up. Somebody look up John 18, 36. We'll just do those two. All right, so 1 John 2, 1, who has that? Go ahead, Kevin. There you go. Advocate with Jesus Christ the righteous. That is a priestly function. The advocate on our behalf for our sins can only be done through the priest. That was a description in the Old Testament, the Levite description. And Jesus assumes that role. That means he's a priest. That's law of deduction, right? All right, and then king. And so many passages talk about his... his Kingship and being king. Revelation 17, 14. Somebody, anybody? James, go. These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings, and those who are with him are tribes Listen, he is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. That's what one of his titles is. He was the lamb in eternity past. And if you can't see the string of redemptive history going from lamb to king of kings, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, that just, that's just an, an incredible reality. He's Lord of lords, king of kings. And he goes from that which was killed and sacrificed to that which will reign forever. And he's all of it. Alpha and Omega. Beginning and end. John 18, 36. Who's got that? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting, so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is my kingdom, not of this world. This realm, this world, this, this system, this, this is what he's talking about, right? Now, if he's the king, why is he here? If this isn't his kingdom, right? You remember the story of Superman, right? shot out of Krypton, and he lands here, and he's like, I don't belong here, right? And he keeps trying to go back home, and he does the ice crystal things, and it's a whole big story. Jesus is not the king of some other realm in terms of, um, in other words, the world here is part. It's subservient to his kingdom. It's not this system, and I'm trying to clarify this. The system of how things work here is not part of his kingdom. But in terms of the actual physical people and land and earth, 
This all falls under his purview, under his authority, under his rule. When he can be on a boat and tell the waves to stop, only a king can do that with his creation. Right? When he can tell a man to stretch forth his withered hand, and the man does, only a king has that kind of authority. And only a supernatural king can do that. So God has complete control. Jesus Christ has complete control over all of his creation. So I wanted to make that distinction about the kingship. Just because Jesus is here, it's not like the Superman story. Okay? I hope that made things more confused than I needed to. All right. Forget Superman. Shut up. Baptism. Super important. Guys, listen. When we have baptisms, the observance of baptism is essential to the life of the believer. Baptism does not save. But it's an outward sign of an inward reality. Okay? And like circumcision, faith precedes it. The root of the word means to be identified with. I do want to, I do want to read this. Baptizo... And its root means to be identified with. It used to be used in the process of dying. De- not dying, but, you know, dipping a cloth into a, making it a different color. Okay? Like a tie-dye shirt. And so what they would do is they would take these little vats of, of water or whatever, and they would put indigo or some kind of natural coloring agent in this. You know, Lydia in Acts 16 was a... Uh, uh, a seller of purple, it says. She would dye cloth to make it a different color. So, baptizo means to basically dip in, and then when it, when it's, when it comes out, the, that cloth is now identified with the color that it was dipped into. There's an identification. It looks like the same thing, same color. So, go to 1 Corinthians 10, and I do want somebody to read this, please. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 and 2. 10, 1 and 2. Anybody? Got about four minutes. Okay, so all were baptized into Moses. What does that mean? All were baptized into Moses. All were identified with Moses. They were a part of his people. They were identified Moses. And everybody who was in that group, all of Israel, was identified with Moses because they were there with him. Okay? And so our baptism is an identification with Christ. He is just. And he, as judge, declares what is just. He pronounces judgment on the nations. And we are identified with that which he has declared to be just. We're we're identified with, baptized into the promise of life through faith. That's That's how we're identified with Christ. And more than that, we're identified with his resurrection. Right? Look, none of these other elements would be significant. If justification were all we were focusing on, if I got up here and said, okay, guys, justification is a legal declaration 
that you are not guilty in Christ. And that's it. Where, where does that leave you? These other things we're talking about, what? How does these, how do these, why did God give us, if that's all that matters, why do we have 66 books? Right? And it's, we have these other 66 books to understand how and why God saves. How and why I need it. The promise of the future because of it. So these are all important things. And then we have the Lord's Supper. Again, the middle of the New Testament is the New Testament uh, Passover. And it was at Passover when Jesus uh, began his ministry. And it was at Passover when Jesus ended his ministry. And so when he's having this meal in the upper room, it was during Passover. Okay? So we are figuratively partaking of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, this, is the, this is the in contradistinction to the Catholics who believe in something called transubstantiation. Right? What that means is that the, the Eucharist, and I may have said this before, but I'll say it again real quick, uh, the, the Catholic priest would hold up the Eucharist and he would say, hoc es corpus meum. Hoc es corpus meum. This is my body. And something magical would happen. Yes, he is. He becomes that. It's to the point where if you drop that or spill that or whatever, you got a whole process of cleaning up and procuring and saving, Right? But, but here's how this became such a problem. Hoc es corpus meum, you're sitting in the back of that little, you know, stone one-room sanctuary, and you're listening to the priest get up and say that. You don't read Latin. You don't speak Latin. You don't know what he's saying. And over a period of time, it just became something else. So the hoc es corpus meum became hocus pocus. And so when a magician says hocus pocus, he's saying... What you see is now, to go, now going to become something else. Right? That's kind of the idea behind that. Interesting thing. Right. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and absolutely. It's an attack on all that he's done, his work, his life, his death, his resurrection. Um, so that was transubstantiation. Consubstantiation was what Luther took. Luther tried to reform the church, and he said, yeah, no, I, that stuff, I don't know, you know, that's not what is happening. Consubstantiation, con means with. And he says, well, when we take the Eucharist, uh, it, it just means that Christ's presence is with and around the Eucharist and the blood, right, the wine. So he had a step down from Catholicism, but it was still this Gnostic idea. It was still this kind of, you know, um, otherness idea. It wasn't what Scripture was taught. To the point to where he was arguing at the... At the um, the argument at Marburg, he was arguing with Zwingli, and they were talking about what, did, what is, and when Christ said, this is my body, it actually became the body he was thinking, and he said at one point, he, he took a knife, and in the table, he carved out, this is my body, saying that is what happens to the Eucharist. It becomes his body prior to his consubstantiation change. 
So we'll pick up here next time. We'll start with the order salutis again. We'll go through that and just talk about, again, how, how the decrees of God and, and, and not to belabor any of these points, but just to show how it, how it gets into uh, the, uh, the definition and understanding of justification. Okay? Um, and so that ends up our redemptive history in Scripture study overview of justification. Okay, you're dismissed.